Hey everybody, Todd Conklin, Three Accident Podcast. Greetings and the salutations. That's kind of an official sounding beginning to this podcast. But this is a pretty official podcast today, you know. Today, there's no rest for the weary. Weaklings need not apply. Because today you're going to have a big old conversation with Dr. Drew Ray from Griffith University in Australia. And I think you'll like it. It's really part one of a two-parter. But we're going to split the two parts up because the second part of this video... That's weird. Why am I talking about the the next one on the current one? My mind must be working in an unusual way. But the second part of this uh, podcast, uh, actually, Drew talks about where he is with his podcast, DisasterCast. If you've not listened to that, that one's out there, and it's fun. It's good. And he's actually starting a new podcast. But that'll come a little later. We'll save that one up because uh, that's part of the excitement of uh, you know waiting for the podcast to drop and have fun. All is well here. Just about got kicked off a plane the other day. So I guess I rolled my eyes and said the word really. Yep, that's what I did. I rolled my eyes and said really. So here's the story. I'm sitting in the plane, and we're we're late as can be. And the pilot comes out, and he says, I'm sorry, folks, but we've, uh, we had a problem with the crew, but we finally got the crew here, and we were just getting ready to push back. And we found a maintenance problem, and it's going to be another half hour. And that's when I looked up at the pilot. I was sitting maybe, and he's saying all this on the PA thing, so he's got that little phone thing up to his mouth, you know, like they do in planes. And I'm sitting there maybe three rows away, and I look up at him, and I go, really? Just like that. And he says over the PA, sir, if you'd like me to escort you out of this plane, I'll be glad to do it right now. So the entire plane's hearing this, and I said, uh, uh, no, I would like for the plane to have left on time. That's what I'd like. And he says, sir, we can either be safe or we can be on time. And I said, and that's the problem because I bought a ticket for both, which is never a popular thing to say. But I would like to suggest, A, I wasn't rude, so let's put that on the record. I did really probably roll my eyes and say, really, I'm I'm certain I said that. But C, the third thing, um. I don't think that's that much to ask. The plane had been sitting there, near as I could tell, for like four hours. And then the crew didn't come, which gave them like another hour to, uh, for the plane to sit there. Well, it seems like they could do the maintenance junk then. Not after they load the entire plane, get us all excited, whipped into a frenzy, act like they're going to take off. You know, it's the classic tease. I don't know if you like being teased, but it's a tease. And then come out and give us the announcement that they're not going to make it. And then cop escort you off the plane attitude like I'm some kind of criminal for saying the word really. And near as I can tell with this, now you can correct me on this, you guys, but when the doors close, the pilot is in charge. When the door is open, the pilot is not in charge. The plane is not actually planing yet. It is just waiting to be planing. And so I think that was the thing that kept me from getting arrested. I did not get arrested. He did not escort me off the plane. Um, I probably did take quite a bit of judgment from the other passengers browbeating me from the back of the head because, you know, they're all going to go on to the side of uh, anything you need, sir. We're here for you. Our schedule is very unimportant compared to yours, but I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I think one of the problems is 
is that when you're burned out and you realize you're burned out, it's too late because you're already burned out. And I think I may be a little bit on the burnout side of waiting in airports for planes, um, especially because every plane I fly on seems to be kind of late. That sounds cranky, and I'm probably, um, you know, complaining a little too much, but I, I always want to bring you in on what's going on in my life in the airlines because if I don't tell you, you don't know. If I don't tell you, you think my life is just perfect. It's seamless. Everything is grand and the world is a wonderful place, and it is. All those things are true. It's just that um, I'm relatively convinced the airlines are trying to kill me, and not by killing me, killing me, but slowly and surely beating me down until I become uh, kind of a blob that does exactly what they want me to do. I'm sure I'll have more stories because I've got another huge strategy going on right now, but um, the details are still out on that. I'll, I'll give you a full report on that one as we progress. Let's talk about what's happening. So I just was in Trinidad and Tobago, and I spoke at the uh, American Chamber of Commerce meeting they have there in Trinidad and Tobago, which is an incredible meeting. Ugh, if you get a chance to go to it, go to it. It's huge. And it's a big safety meeting, and um, and Drew Ray was one of the speakers. So I got to hang out with Drew, and that's always fun because he's a really sweet guy. And uh, kind of a, I would suggest one of the lead thinkers in safety academics in the whole world. So that was fun. We got to hang out with him. But more importantly, I conned him into doing a podcast, which you're going to get to hear. I mean, that's that's part of what we're going to talk about. And he's going to talk a little bit about what's happening on the academic side with safety and all the important parts of that that are, that are uh, happening. I think you'll find this podcast super interesting. It starts out super interesting. In fact, um, well, I shouldn't, I'll let the surprise unveil. I won't, I won't give a spoiler. I'll just kind of allow you to sort of drift into it. Listen carefully as Drew and I sit and talk, um, in, in Trinidad, that's where we were, um, hanging out in a, in a city called Port of Spain, Trinidad, uh, just sitting around talking about what's going on in Drew's life. And he wanted you to hear, so he allowed me to record it. So without any further ado, here is Drew Ray and Todd chitting and chatting talk to you later so how are things going what's been up tell me everything bring us all up to speed okay so um i guess biggest changes is we've been getting out in the field a lot more oh that's so great putting researchers out on site uh watching work happen and learning from it how's it going uh, we're still finding out stuff which continues to both surprise me and cause me to ask new questions. Ooh, like what? Uh, Tell me more. Uh, so, okay, my, my favorite recent one. So one of our field researchers is a guy called Jop Havinger. Mm-hmm. Um, he has this great ability to just fit in anywhere and notice stuff while he's doing it. And so he came back from watching water mains workers. So these are the guys who go out and fix the supply of water not coming to your house. Right, in the middle of the street, standing over manholes, those guys, yeah. Yeah. And he noticed that they stop work all the time. So previously we'd sort of thought, you know, stopping work is this process that happens. And it's almost like an incident. It's something that you can notice that it's happened and think, okay, what went right? What caused them to um, 
noticed that they should stop work? How did they make the decision? How did they execute the decision? We, we, I mean, that's interesting in its own right. But he said, no, this is just, don't even treat it like an incident. It's like part of normal work. Um, it's only in hindsight that we say it was like this discrete event. But they're all the time calling the dispatcher and saying, no, we're going to change the order of our jobs because this one doesn't look right. Uh, we don't have the right tools for this, but there's another team. You know, why don't you get the team that's got the right tool to come along? Um, uh, this one's looking a bit wet, so we'll go to the next one and come back later in the day when it's a bit sunnier and we've got better light. And so it just sort of, that observation changed something that we were looking at as an exception to this is something that happened normally and turned it into the same way we'd look at normal work. So so that's probably not going to be very surprising to people who do work. They know that. How does that change what your guys are thinking, what your guys are talking about? Okay, no, no that, that's a good point. I think that's a safe description of everything we do. Yeah, is that right, nothing, fair nothing we research is surprising yeah. to people who actually do. Work. Okay, touche, fair um, enough. That's fair. When, when we think it's successful is when we describe it back to them and they say, yeah, we knew that, but we hadn't really put it like that or we hadn't thought about it like that. So that, that's what academic safety is, is we're providing sort of meta descriptions of work that help people think about it so that they can think about so that they can communicate it to other people, that they can think about how to make it better themselves. That's the... Oh, that's brilliant, actually. Yeah, the, the value we add is not discovering secrets. It's discovering patterns that people were sort of subconscious of, worked to. That are part of kind of the normal operations and things are happening. The field work you're doing, it's got to be valuable. How are you coding that back in? What, what are you doing with this? Uh, so, I mean, the u- usual process is report straight back to the company with specific stuff to them that we think is most valuable and most and for them what's most valuable is what's most immediately actionable Mm -hmm. um but for us what's most valuable is things that we can put names to and then share those phenomenon with names do the companies want you to solve their problems i mean i think that's kind of i think i can answer that probably yes but Uh, the the companies we tend to work with and I don't know why this is. Maybe this is a problem with our marketing, is we don't get called in as troubleshooters. Um, you, I mean, a lot of safety academics, they get called in, you, can you help out with this incident? Yeah. Can you, we've got this problem with hand injuries. What can we do about it? We need an extra insight. Uh, they don't tend to call us for that. They tend to just be more companies that are concerned with sort of plateau in their safety. They're looking not to solve a problem, but to know what to do next. Um, Often it's as simple as you've got a operations person or a safety person who has a drive or desire to be innovative. You know, even one that happened recently was basically he'd been mentored saying, to, you know, to go up in your career, you're going to need to run a successful innovation project. And so they come to us saying, you know, what can we do? We need a successful yeah, innovation tell, tell, tell project. Us, yeah, tell us something that's innovative. <laughs> and successful. And then I'll get to move up. Yeah. I mean, that, that's brilliant in a way. I mean, that's as good a reason to motivate as any. It's, to me, the, taking, taking the applied approach, going in the field more, um, it, is really interesting because it really is where either the, the two ideas collide or combine, right? And I, I think the belief that the academic safety that we see uh, really globally is, is a bit ivory-towered. Right, I mean, sometimes that impression is is there, and bringing it down to the applied level, I think, is, is 
has got real value um, to the safety community. I don't. It's, I'm kind of talking, but I mean, I'm really curious what you're thinking yeah, about no, that. I think that's both a fair criticism and a fair reorientation of the mission. Um, we've there's, there's an issue coming out of the journal Safety Science, which is, I mean, as far as there is a flagship safety journal, um, and it's about the future of safety science. And it's partly your future of safety science as a field and partly future of safety science as a journal. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that a lot of the papers that come out of that are going to be people who've been around a long time expressing frustration with the lack of scientific progress. So the lack of safety, the safety academic community being able to genuinely offer something back for all of the time and attention we take up with the research that we do. Why does the empirical side of of safety science, why is it so difficult? Why is it different than other social sciences? A lot of social science suffers from the same problems that we have. Um, but there's a, I guess, institutional thinking in safety science that has gone a bit astray. We're interdisciplinary, so we lack the sort of core focus that something like social psychology has. Social psychology has got its core measures, right. and they tend to converge on very psychometric type right. stuff. Um, organizational science has got its measures and practices, and they tend to go more ethnographic. Right. Um, safety science tends to absorb the ideas from those other fields, but then we just implement them in a crappy safety-specific way. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, organization research comes up with this idea of organizational culture and it's deep and nuanced and complex and we slap safety on it and turn it into a survey right yeah and and go out and either try to uh leverage it to get the 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 top floor to be more interested and more motivated or sell it as a product to other companies i mean that's that's kind of what happens that's interesting to me how do you see the future of safety science where do you think this is all going from from your vantage point because you're in a good place to look So so there's two parts there. There's a question of where do I think it's going and where would I like it to go? Okay, so let's let's answer both because I think that's super interesting. So let's start with where do you think – no, let's start with where do you think it's going and then let's go to where where do you want it to go. That's a good way to do it. All right, so so where I think it's going, at least projecting current trends forward, is that it gets more and more research which is cheap to do. So this is taking fairly complicated models of safety culture and doing psychometric surveys that say um, this is how leadership mediates the relationship between trust and self-reported safety climate. Right. So kind of are you following Amy Edmondson's stuff on psychological safety? I think what's the name of the book, The Fearless Organization? Um, I'm, I'm familiar with it. I'm not closely following it. But it's the sort of thing where, like, Psychological safety is deep and complex, and people write books about it. Yeah. We're going to turn it into a five-point scale with ten questions, <laughs> guaranteed. And then we're going to publish papers about what is the relationship between uh, transactional leadership. You know, how does transactional lead- leadership mediate the relationship between safety climate and psychological safety? And I'm not kidding. That's a real paper. Oh, my god! there are dozens of similar ones. Jeez. Jeez. And that, that, that's the trend that I see that we need to stop because it, it adds no value. Yeah, I mean, how, we, for that for, how does an organization deal with that? What do you do with the information? And how do we drift to the place where that becomes 
honestly a legitimate thing to look at. I mean, what's going on? Uh, Part of it is what we think of as rigorous research. So psychology went through this phase that was basically physics envy. How do we we go from essentially what's Freudian psychology is almost philosophy. And they said, like, how do we make this more like physics where we can measure stuff, we can test stuff, we can make stuff repeatable? Um, And safety has adopted a lot of that. Um, But the big sort of continuous problem is we don't have safety academics. We've got people from other fields who drift into safety. Right. And they have no sort of core grounding in that knowledge. Or we have safety practitioners who become academics, which is, it's great to have a mix of those in the teaching so we can tell war stories and contribute stuff. And I think I put myself half in that category. I've spent about equal times practitioner and academic. But the result is you don't have strong grounding in the research methods of your field. We've got engineers trying to create theories of organizational culture. And there are people who study organizations who did bachelors and masters in how do you study an organization. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And the fact that we try to co-op, well, I mean, the whole whole notion of culture, and there's a whole, there's an entire body of knowledge around culture. Not just is there a body of knowledge, but the field that invented culture moved on from that 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah I was going to say And now they talk exactly. about institutional logics yeah. and that sort of stuff. Yeah. I and mean, they basically abandoned culture for many of the same reasons that people are currently frustrated with safety culture. Right, exactly. Uh, and if exactly sort of, right. any, any criticism you invent of safety, safety culture was said about organizational culture before we invented safety culture. So where's this, where's this need to go? Where do you want to take? Okay, so the our submission, and remember, this is just a submission, and it's not peer-reviewed research; it's an opinion piece. Right. Um, we, we called it a manifesto, just because we don't. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Hey, why not? I mean, I can't think of a reason to not use we're the word have, manifesto. We're going to do a diatribe. Let's yeah. call it a diatribe. Damn it. <laughs> exactly. So, manifesto for reality-based safety, and principle number one is that safety researchers need to make the principal object that they're researching work. So instead of measuring all these secondary things, you we don't don't research leadership. That's an abstract concept. Don't measure culture. And, that's and, an abstract concept. Yep. And in particular, don't think that your focus is fixing things. Uh, don't invent stuff. Don't think that the focus of safety research should be inventing new methods. Um, make the focus of safety research studying work and trying to find out useful things about work that you can report back to organizations to act on. Gosh, that's brilliant. Um, and then once you once you start that, there's a number of things that follow along straight away. Um, and so the second big one is you've got to be physically present at the work that you're talking about. Right. If you're going to research work, you've got to be there when work yeah, happens. You have to be there at the work phase. I mean, you have to be where the work is. Um, and and that's, the, that's, that's the legitimate criticism of ivory tower academics. I mean, academics do not live in ivory towers. No. We're, we're people. We work. No. Yes. Um, we, we have to put up with company management systems. We have to put yep. up with weird KPIs. We go home at the end of the day and we play around with power tools. Yeah. Um, but the legitimate part of the criticism is we get secondhand reports of work and we think that makes us credible. We think that we understand it. And so we say things that we think are novel that end up being obvious to everyone who actually does the job. Right. Unless right. we spend long periods of time 
And that's not surveying. Surveying is not looking at work. That's not talking to managers. That's not talking to work. It means actually putting on a hard hat, grabbing a big bottle of water, and being on site for long enough that you see. Is that changing the way you guys formulate your research ideas, your research questions, the, the directions you're moving? This need to spend more time, more significant time embedded with work? Um, it, it, it does. Um, I'm just trying to think of... I mean, there's a massive change for me personally. Until a few years ago, I would have thought that that was a... I would have drawn a line between system safety, which I did, dealing with major accidents, right. and occupational health and safety, right. which is about wearing hard hats. Right. And it would just have been weird for me to put on a hard hat because yeah, that's not what I research. Um, but increasingly, I'm seeing that work is work. And you're an engineer doing a design is doing work. You want to understand the engineer doing the design. You don't work with an abstract idea of how engineers work. You don't deal with V life cycle models. You go and watch engineers at work. You want to learn about digging holes. You don't assume you know what digging a hole is like. You go and watch the guy dig the hole. You talk to the guy digging the hole. If at all you can get an opportunity, you have a go at digging the hole. Um, and so, yeah, it's changed my idea about what quality is in research, mostly that quality comes not from that sort of the superficial level of how have we designed this, what are our measures, what are our parameters. Quality comes from authenticity. Do you, do you think it's because the, the outcome of the research, the target for where the research is going has changed? Uh, you might need to explain See, what it was a little, Yeah, I'm trying to formulate this into a question. Traditionally, I think we wrote research to help legitimize safety science, and it's physics, and and to draw some really clear, strong, empirical information so we could show it to the rest of the world. I think that's a different audience than actually understanding how work is done. Um, so I, two answers to that one. The first one is I disagree a bit about who, who the audience was. I think we started off doing safety research because we thought we knew the way to do safety and fair we wanted enough. to tell other people how to do it. Yeah, fair enough. I, yeah. And I think a lot of safety academics still do that, is they think they know the right way to do safety, they teach people the right way to do safety, and they see research just as a different version of the teaching. The research is producing documents instead of classes right. about fair how, enough. To, how to do yeah, fair enough. safety. Um, I think the other side of that, and this comes down to how we reward people, is the reason why academics do research is to get papers published and get promoted as academics. Right. Um, and you can never eliminate that totally because that is fundamental to university Well, that's your structures. KPI. It, it is. And most academics, after they've been around long enough, either decide that they want to rise up the university hierarchy or they get to the point that they actually don't care and then they start finding other rewards for themselves to measure it by. Um, but there, there's another trap, which is being a guru is really attractive. Yeah. Being that person that everyone listens to and that everyone loves your ideas and tells you how great your ideas are and buys your books and goes and preaches to their own organization about your ideas, that is so seductive. And that's not helpful either because that's still telling people what to do. Yeah, it's just a nicer way. Um, it's a... Yeah, the more idea, lucrative way of telling people what to do. Yeah, yeah. 
the, the idea of doing research because you're curious about stuff is what makes the good research. And so, yeah, finding academics that are driven by curiosity. So that's uh, that's the question. Then, and then keeping that curiosity are, despite all the pressures. Are we curious enough? I would submit no. I would submit that the, the one thing that we could probably amplify and be greatly rewarded for is an, is an increase in curiosity. I, th- I think we need to somehow foster that curiosity differently. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I certainly know myself, and this is common to a number of people, that the path went from I know how to do it to I'm really, really frustrated because it doesn't work the way I know how to do it. Yeah, and I don't know don't know why. To, I wonder why this is. Yeah, um, and that's certainly what took me out in from academia out into industry to tell people what to do, and it's what brought me back in because I wanted a space. And this is what universities offer. That that's the real value that they have is I wanted a space where I wasn't within the constraints of an individual company where I had to have the answers. I could instead be a space where I could find out the answers. Is that a logical developmental phase, like a maturity model? Do you do you start out knowing, you you then tell, and then you figure out you don't know, and then you start asking? Because at least in my career, I, I really went through a period of time when I realized I don't have the answers, and the answers aren't very interesting. It's the questions. The, the questions are really stimulating. Not knowing is way more fun than knowing. I, I'm, I'm much the same. I, I don't think that's universal. Really? Um, I, I, I honestly... I, I mean, curiosity is always a positive word. I've never found someone who would self-describe as, I am not curious. But curiosity killed the cat, Drew. I'm lost of how to respond. So, you know, <laughs> did you know that phrase, does that phrase translate culturally? It, it, it does. Just not very well. Um, I think in organisations... Curiosity is seen the same as not knowing the answer that you're supposed to have. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I've, but the crazy thing is that it's the only way you get better is by knowing more, right? I mean, that's so, and the only way you can know more is to realize you have to be curious. Yeah, the only way you can know more is by admitting that you know less. Yeah, right? Which I guess is risky. And it probably is risky early in your career it, during those development phases when you're trying to move up the ladder or, you know, position yourself and a more secure place in the organization, probably being an expert is uh, knowing the answers. There's probably a big difference between being an expert and knowing the answers, but knowing the answers is probably a safe place to be. Yes. Yeah, so, so this gets back, I guess, to what I was saying before about uh, careers in safety academia, not having safety academics. It's a safe career path in academia that you start off admitting that you don't know nothing and you do research to find out what you know, and then you create a little bit of expertise enough to claim your position. But still, what's driving you is the ability to propose projects which need to have questions and need to publicly display that curiosity. So you get rewarded by finding out answers, but also having good questions to keep investigating. Right, right. But that doesn't work once you get too senior. So if you're someone with 10 years' experience in industry and you come back to a university to teach, you don't get rewarded for claiming to know nothing. Yeah, you, you, get you were hired. For no, you were hired because you know stuff, yeah, because, because you can teach stuff. Because you're the expert. Um, and you've lost or had beaten out of you that ability to say, hey, I don't know, let's let's go find out. 
is the academic model for safety science a good model? Is is maybe the foundation, the university, not the right place for this? I mean, it's just a question. I don't really have an answer to that. You've got to have people who aren't constrained by a single organization. Um, I feel a little bit like I'm marketing the manifesto, but <laughs> we threw in one, a point, which is the, this idea that we've got it backwards, this relationship between what industry offers and what academia offers. Um, academia doesn't offer answers to problems. Right. And shouldn't. Those should come from industry. And in safety, there's no panacea. So the answers are really specific to any individual organisation. Right. So we shouldn't be inventing methods. We shouldn't be telling you how to fix things. What we offer is generalizable knowledge. So we're not within a single organization. We can look across multiple organizations and even multiple industries and see those broad patterns that give you ways of thinking that people within an organization can use their local knowledge to work out how to apply it, use it to come up with solutions to problems. Are you optimistic? At least, at least where I am now and with the people I'm working with, we seem to be in a point where the university and industry are rewarding us for going down the path that I would like to go down. So the model works in one place at one time for us. I hope that that success is something that is transferable. Um, I know that safety groups all around the world at universities keep getting captured into becoming expert consultancies. And then we just end up being low-paid consultants. And then if we're smart, we shift out of university and become high-paid consultants. And so that consultancy trap is always there. Um, But yeah, at least right here, right now, I get to be curious and I get to do projects that indulge that curiosity. Are are we developing uh, a cadre of students coming into it? Do we we have the right people coming in? Are, are, Are we interesting to... New students who are looking for areas of expertise to study while in university. Uh, we, we we are, and they're not they're not safety students, uh, so they're not people coming out of our safety programs. They're not people who are doing a bachelor in safety. Uh, they're people going through things like social science, uh, just being interested in how people work, and then we tempt them with safe, safety and say, "Look, safety is this interesting problem to apply your." way of looking at the world too. You're starting to theorize about how organizations work. Well, here's a real interesting example of how organizations work. Come and study safety. Um, this is one advantage safety does has. We can also say, you know, come and study safety because industry actually pays us money. Yeah, Industry yeah. doesn't pay safety science, social scientists much. That's right, not, hardly anything um, at all. They're not that interested really. But, but they, are, they, are, they are periodically interested in spending money on safety because oh, they, sure. they see it as having value. Sure, for sure. Um, and also, I mean, we can make a pretty compelling business case that organizations are already spending heaps of money on safety. Aren't they curious yeah. about whether that's working? And that's a good business case. That's a really good business case. And then we don't need to solve their problems. We just need to tell them what they're doing now and how well it's working. And then they can prim away the stuff that's not working right. and solve new problems themselves. Well, that's, and that's kind of brilliant as well. What a great conversation. Thanks. Yeah, yeah having fun. Okay, I shouldn't talk to much longer because I'm already one minute and 34 seconds over time, but that's how it works. Little bonus. I didn't know what to cut, so I cut nothing. When I don't know what to cut, I cut nothing. So that's what I have. I hope you enjoyed that. Isn't Drew nice? He's super casual and 
super easy to talk to and, and fun to listen to. So that was kind of a nice podcast, I thought. What do you think? Good? You in? Okay, that's all that matters. I'll talk to you more later. Have fun. Tell your friends. Subscribe. Uh, give us a good rating. That seems to help. Um, write comments. That brings us up. Google us. Google us a million times while you're sitting there doing nothing, will you? Until then, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, be safe. <laughs>